You're listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Carl Cook. Today, we're joined by Emily Chambers-Sharp, who is the president and CEO of House of Mercy. House of Mercy's mission is to provide quality care in a residential setting for low-income people living with HIV who can no longer care for themselves and face homelessness. Emily, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm really thankful to have you here today because you're addressing such an important issue and you're actually the first president or CEO we've had on Growth Exponential Podcast to speak about this issue. So could you share with us at a high level about House of Mercy? Yeah. So House of Mercy was founded in 1991 in response to the burgeoning HIV AIDS epidemic in the U.S. And it was started by the Sisters of Mercy, a group of women religious in Belmont, North Carolina, who have always been very forward thinking. And they, in the late 80s, said they wanted to respond to HIV. They didn't have a lot that they could figure out to offer in terms of advancing medical science. So they opened a home and they took in people who were very, very sick. And often at those early days, we're shepherding them into their, what comes beyond this life, whatever that might've been for them. And so that process of being a place of dignity for people when they were at their sickest point is our origin. And that's how we continue today. Wow, that's beautiful. And what is it that led you to House of Mercy? Yeah, I often laugh about sort of the way that my life has unfolded. I don't feel like I was ever following something that would look like a really straight line. But I knew from early on that I was really interested in helping people. That was something I was drawn to growing up. I was exposed to a lot of that in my faith communities. And it was very appealing to me. HIV became an issue in my family, not um, too far into the epidemic. In the 80s, my mother had a cousin who died. And when that disease came into our family, it was shrouded in a lot of silence and secrecy. But I was made aware of it, I think, in my teenage years when I started to be a little more personally active in some social service. And so I think I've always been drawn to people who are at the margins, to issues that would touch lives of people who might be kind of invisible or not necessarily easily accepted, stigmatized in society. So I also had a lot of interest in the arts. And so when I went to undergrad, that's kind of the path I was on. I was looking at things like writing and music and you know foreign languages and not really sure where I was going to end up. By the time I finished with university and spent a little bit of time working out in the world, I had an opportunity to go overseas and serve through a volunteer program for a few years. And I ended up, after studying Arabic in Egypt for about six months, living in the northern part of Sudan. This was in the early 2000s. And I was invited to work with some folks, after I'd done some other public health type work, to work with some folks on the HIV AIDS response in Sudan and those early days. And I really connected with, first of all, through a UNICEF-supported project, children of people who had HIV. So they were children whose parents were living with HIV, and the children were experiencing a lot of stigma and a lot of difficulty. I was really drawn to kind of finding ways to help engage those children in telling their stories and also trying to bridge other children who might not understand HIV into kind of saying, hey, these are just kids and families like your, your family. 
and why don't we get together and we can all maybe learn from each other and not be as afraid. From those early experiences, I ended up doing a lot more in HIV and came back to the U.S. I ended up working with a small NGO, a mid-sized NGO in their HIV AIDS programming. Did that for a number of years, grew a lot of youth-based programming for a period of time. I went to graduate school um, in Boston and did a master's in public health and then went to work in the humanitarian health and and nutrition kind of response, which was building on some of the HIV stuff, but just kind of putting me a little bit more, again, I'm I'm always drawn to sort of where the fires are. And at that time it was Darfur. So I went to live in Darfur and worked out there. From Darfur, I made my way back to the US and back into HIV AIDS and actually worked for the US government's global HIV AIDS response. It's called PEPFAR or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. In the midst of all of this, I got married, and the second time that I got pregnant, I was having twins, and I decided I needed to step back a little bit. So my family and I moved to North Carolina, where instead of out of the D.C. area where we'd been for a little while and all over the world, we came to the North Carolina area, and I worked remotely for global organizations for a while, but I had a notion that perhaps... I could find a local organization and put my skills and kind of learnings from all these years in global health into the problems facing the marginalized people in our neighborhood here in the U.S. And that's how I ended up in the Belmont area working with House of Mercy. They had an opening when the previous CEO and president was retiring. And I thought I've got HIV response from around the globe. I've seen this epidemic in a lot of its forms, and I would really like to come alongside um, the folks already in my area and in my neighborhood and see what we could do together to continue to respond to HIV here. And so that started in October of 2018. And here I still am. We've been doing some really exciting things. That's amazing. What, What a great story and how beautiful it is that you're able to be involved in your community with something that you're so passionate about from both from your childhood and throughout your professional and academic life. Share with me now, what are some of the activities and what are you doing on the ground? Yeah, so House of Mercy, when it started and up to now, is a home. It's a six bed facility that is licensed as a residential care place for people living with HIV. We have six residents at a time, often in those first few decades of House of Mercy's life, until you get to about the last eight years or nine years, really. This was a place for the dying. And we were caring for people in the moments when they were feeling their most vulnerable. The Sisters of Mercy originally founded the house, as I mentioned, and staffed it. And over time, they made it its own 501c3 nonprofit with independent leadership. And that is the long legacy, you know, that the leadership that is not of the sisters, but we have a director of nursing and case management. We have a staff of about 12 different certified nurse assistants and one activity coordinator for our residents. We have 24-7 care. We make sure we provide transportation to all the appointments that everyone has. We are not the primary care provider for any of our residents, but we are the connector to that care and the coordinator of that care. We play a really key role in now that folks have much better access to medicine. So as I think about those last eight or nine years that I mentioned, we've seen this change where medicine has improved. And so people are much more likely to live a long life and can get healthier. So we have folks who come in the door now and 
maybe you're only here for nine months, six months while they get on their feet. But most people who are walking through our door now, well before they come to us, have faced a whole host of various social economic challenges. And so we often like to say, if you hear about issues on the news, there's probably someone here in our six residents who's faced nearly everything you've ever heard of. Whether you wanna talk about immigration, racism, problems with economic mobility, we have that population here at House of Mercy. And so we find nowadays, we like to say we provide hope, healing, and a home. Hope is you walk in the door and we say to you, you're not alone. We're going to walk with you. There is a future for you. Even if you're dying, we are going to make sure that you do that with all the dignity you would like. And most people aren't dying anymore. So we're going to walk with you and show you the pathway, right? Uh, then there's the healing piece. We get you access to all of the treatment that you can imagine, but not just that. We partner with other social service agencies to make sure we can get you mental health help. We can get you access to so many of our folks come in and they've never had access to even things that you would think they would know about, Medicaid, Social Security. We help people get connected with those services. We get people connected with services that will provide them with a leg up into housing. Most folks who come to us are not stably housed is what I would say. They might not refer to themselves as homeless, but they don't have an address of their own. And then we are always a home for residents. Um, residents who come to us can return if they want um, to visit at any time. But while they're here, this is their home. And we try to be very respectful of that. So that's sort of the heart of who we are today. And we have a lot that we're looking forward to in the future, but we're still going to build on those three key ideas of hope, healing, and a home. Wow, that's so important. What is what you mentioned building for the future? What do you envision? Well, our board has just taken a really exciting step and we've agreed that in addition to our house, the physical brick and mortar that we have to care for people, that we want to build a bridge to the community and start to see what are the ways that we can provide hope, healing, and a home to people with HIV, maybe who can't come through our doors. This came from the fact that when our residence has an opening, we might have for one bed, three or four people that we're talking with. And not all of them are appropriate necessarily for the level of care that we provide, or some of them really need a help or a connection to transportation to their appointments. Some of them need stability in terms of someone who can help make sure that they are able to provide a consistent amount of self-care. I say that thinking of one young man in particular who called us and he really didn't require 24 seven nursing care. Um, and we're not a nursing home, but we have um, certified nursing assistants here. He didn't really require that level of care, but he was coming out of drug rehab, newly diagnosed with HIV and needed some kind of self care and accountability and wanted to be in a good positive environment. And we did try to connect him with other social services, but what we recognized is we are so fortunate to be well-resourced as an organization that we have flexibility in how we can case manage. We're not just case managing based on what we can bill someone else for. We have a good donor base to support us. So we think we would like to be able to say to a young man like that, hey, look, a bed here is not the place for you, but we can still help you have hope, healing in a home by walking alongside you. 
And some of that we're looking at potentially using technology, maybe an app of some kind where we can talk with folks, as well as connecting people with more peers in the community, peers who've gone through an HIV diagnosis and maybe can walk alongside them. We're also looking at linking to a broader peer network that serves the Charlotte area that's been around for a long time and we have ties with. So basically this bridge to the community is our real new expansion piece. And we're very excited and a lot of the community organizations serving people with HIV are excited as well that we're looking into this. We think once these folks have become visible, right? They, folks getting diagnosed with HIV who before their diagnosis with HIV don't really have any links to the healthcare system, any links to social services because they really haven't been utilizing them. A lot of the times that's because of housing instability. Sometimes it's because maybe they've only been linked to the criminal justice system, right? But we are trying to say, okay, if you've been diagnosed with HIV at a point when you were very sick, either from addiction or very sick because of the disease, we don't want you to ever become invisible again. And this is our attempt, this bridge to the community to say, we're going to make sure once you're seen and known, if you want us with you, we'll walk with you. That's beautiful. Can you share a story with us about a success story or something that's happened recently that really has stuck with your heart? Yeah. I mean, I feel so blessed to be able to hear stories like this all the time, honestly. But one of my favorites over the last year was a young man who was kind of the typical person that I mentioned to you, invisible in the system. We find, especially among a lot of young African-American men, and especially those who have sex with men, that unfortunately they are very invisible um, to the system. And he was very young, had a ton of potential, had done some college work, had struggled financially for a long time, had struggled to really find a foothold, and found himself very sick diagnosed with HIV while in the hospital for what he thought were other illnesses and without anywhere to live. At the time that he came to House of Mercy, he weighed 91 pounds at six foot one. So that's a pretty sick young man. And over his stay with us in eight months, he was registered with Social Security and Medicaid so that now he will have economic stability that will help him for the rest of his life. We were able to get him well from his comorbidities, the other infections he had with HIV that were really making him sick. We saw his viral count go up. And what's really amazing with HIV is that if your viral load of HIV goes down and you're able to fight it off in your body, then you are actually able eventually to become what they call undetectable with HIV, which means you can't transmit HIV to anyone else. It's amazing news. And so this guy was well on his way to being at an undetectable level of HIV. We got him connected with some other social services and found him a place to live. So he has an apartment. He's walking out with, you know, stable benefits coming in. And we connected him with other providers where he could find peer support or mental health support should he need it. And so his story is a really classic one, honestly. We have several folks like that who have come through in the last year, but his really stands out to me. We're really pleased watching him walk out the door and knowing his life is better off because he was here. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like you're doing good for so many people. What are ways that our listeners can help you accomplish your mission? Everyone will say donate, and we're not going to tell you not to. I would love for people to come and join with us in that way. We really think of our donors as partners. You make our work possible. And one awesome thing is that the way that we've worked with the Sisters of Mercy, we've managed to be able to take all the other donor dollars that we get and apply them directly to the operations 
So they don't go to cover my salary or just administrative costs overall. However, we still need those. And especially with this exciting new work we're going to have. And if this stirs your heart, come partner with us. We can help tell you more stories about the people who will do the good work. I also really encourage people. We have in April our Walk for AIDS every year. And it is an amazing time. If you're in the Charlotte area, come out and join us. We're right there at the tail end of April this year. I'm looking it up on my calendar while I speak because it's on April 25th this year. That walk is such a great time. We are advocates. We stand in community with the people living with HIV and AIDS in our area. We remember the important work that House of Mercy has done for a long time. And that's an awesome way to kind of advocate and raise awareness. And yeah, so I'd love for people to join us uh, in the area. If you can't be a part of the Walk for AIDS in person, you can always donate. Awesome. And how do people find you? We have a website that we're working on all the time, thehouseofmercy.org. There's a lot of houses of mercy around here. So thehouseofmercy.org is important. We're also on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And we post a lot of content for people who are interested in HIV AIDS. We really try to keep people fed with good content around news that's coming out. And the other thing that we do is we have Resident Fun Friday, which is when we post pictures of our residents in their various activities. And some of those are my favorites every week. This summer, one of the ones that got the most attention was the residents out fishing on a fishing pier. And it was just gorgeous. So I encourage people to just maybe just for feel goods on Friday, at least. I know I'll be checking those out. Everyone wants to feel good on a Friday. So what a beautiful way to do it. I want to thank you so much for your time today and wish you tremendous success in all your worthy endeavors. Thanks so much. It's wonderful to talk with you. And I, I hope other nonprofit leaders, you know, continue to be inspired by the stories. I enjoyed hearing some of the stories that you had recorded from others. You've been listening to the Growth Exponential Podcast. If you know an executive director or nonprofit professional that you think I should interview, shoot me an email at bradley at growthexponential.org.